Some people take, some people get took. And they know they're getting took, and there's nothing they can do about it. Why wouldn't you say that? What would you like to have for dinner? Huh? Hey, uh, onion soup and a canned asparagus. I really should be getting home. My family will be flipping by now. Oh, you can't leave yet. The doctor said it takes 48 hours to get that stuff out of your system. I wonder how long it takes to get someone you're stuck on out of your system. If only they'd invent some kind of pump for that. My guest today is Tom Zielinski. Tom is the co-creator and co-host of Best Pick Pod, along with Jessica Regan and John Dorney, one of my favorites. He's also the producer of the Guilty Feminist podcast. He's a playwright and an author and just an all-around great guy. When he said he wanted to come on and talk about the films of Billy Wilder, I was super excited. I love Billy Wilder films. This was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy. This is Geek 4, a podcast about fans, fandom, and fan culture. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce. Everyone likes something, but what are you a geek for? Tom Zielinski, thank you so much for being here on Geek 4 today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about the films of Billy Wilder, uh, which really excites me. But I wanted to start with just talking a little bit about your podcast, Best Pick, because it's one of my favorite podcasts. People who listen to this show will know that I, I really enjoy your show, where you talk about Best Picture Oscar winners, and, and now you're kind of going on and you have a new season. Uh, can you describe yep. what that is? I haven't really decided what it is. Uh, our new tagline is we look at the world of film from a variety of different angles. Uh, so we've done films that are personal favourites of ours. We've done films that uh, have a particular place in film history. We've done some as commentaries, some in our regular format where we share research first, watch the film and then come back and give you our thoughts about it. Uh, we have a couple of interviews uh, planned. Uh, so we just become, we've, we've become a kind of broader um, film podcasts. Uh, we still do special episodes on the Oscars and we'll do a special episode on, of all films, Coda. Not a film I thought was going to be uh, added to that list of Best Picture winners only a few weeks ago, but uh, one which, well, its victory became more and more inevitable as the last few weeks went by and lo, it has won. So there you go. Yes. There are lots of great film podcasts. What I love especially about yours is that you guys are able to talk about film in such an intelligent way, but also contextualize it within a really interesting historical, cultural context. But more than that, it's your friendship. Um, and I'm kind of going somewhere with this with the Billy Wilder conversation, because I know The Apartment as a film figures pretty prominently in the friendship you have with John and Jessica. That's true. I was wondering if you could start with that. I remember the conversation with Jess very clearly. We were on a corporate job doing some sort of half-assed role-play thing. And there were six of us and we were paired up and I was paired up with Jess and there was time to kill. Uh, and so I asked people, I'm fond of asking people, what's your favourite movie? And sometimes I give the addendum. Of course, it's an absurd question, but I know that some people have a prepared answer and I'd be keen to know what yours is. And she said, um, probably The Apartment. I guess that's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. And that just floored me because no one had ever said my favourite film back to me before, to the point where I, at first I assumed she was talking about the French film L'Appartement because it seemed so extraordinary that she could be thinking of the Billy Wilder film. But no, she was. And then I don't remember how it came up with John. It must have been before we started doing Best Pick, but I don't remember exactly when it was. 
Jess sometimes says Magnolia. It depends when you ask her. Uh, but it's a very special film for all of us. And then because it was a special film for all three of us and we were doing this film podcast together, it became extra specially super special. That, that is one of my favorite episodes because um, it is an Academy Award winning best picture. I'm not one for top 10 lists, but because I'm a film prof, people tend to ask them. I tend to be representative. Um, so I like a, like one director kind of stands in for all of his, his, yeah. his or her work. And the Billy Wilder film that stands on my list has fluctuated between Double Indemnity and more recently, The Apartment. I think, I've, I think, the, I think the Apartment's better, honestly. It might be perfect. Yes. And I don't I, say that lightly. <laughs> I, I wouldn't change a single frame of it. It is just no. a remarkable piece of work. Even the, uh, the slightly hard to take Marilyn Monroe impersonation just goes down fine. It's not that bad. And <laughs> if you know that, you know, he, working with her yep. was challenging, it works, <laughs> it works fine. And I mean, that's, that's such an interesting period in Wilder's, in Wilder's career. And Wilder's such a, a unique director. I, it, it's an odd question, but when did you know you were watching Wilder movies? <sighs> I'm pretty sure the first one I saw was Some Like It Hot which is a pretty good place to start. I think mm-hmm. it's like my like a Sunday afternoon and my dad said, oh, this is on TV, you might like this one. And then, weirdly, the other one I remember watching very early on, weirdly, is Buddy Buddy. Oh. Which is not a great film, but has a delicious premise and has Walter Matthau and Jack Levin. Mm. Uh, and it's th- things like that that... Wilder had this incredible eye for a situation, whether it was a comedic or a dramatic one. And the situation at the beginning of Buddy Buddy is delicious. You have this hitman who is staking out a hotel in order to pull off a sniper job. And he discovers that in the room next door, there is a man who is suicidal, who is planning to jump out the window. And he knows he cannot allow this man to do this because that will bring police and all sorts of other unwanted attention. So now he has to be a friend to this man in order to persuade him that life is still worth living. Uh, the rest of the film is kind of a mess, but <laughs> that's a delicious situation to play around with. Yeah. Wilder said afterwards that he screwed it up because he cast two comedians. He should have had a straight man in the Walter Matthau part. But how could you go wrong with that pairing? Like, they, they, they did such amazing work all over. Like, unfortunately, I think, their pairings in in Billy Wilder films aren't as good as they should have been. Um, you know, when you look at things like Grumpy Old Man or The Odd Couple. Wilder was approached to direct The Odd Couple, and I don't remember why he didn't do it. It's it's curious because if he has if he has an actor, it's it's Jack Lemmon. Yeah. Um, easily, like he's in so many films. He does a few films with William Holden, obviously, but like the, the, until he gets Lemmon, he he's very eclectic in who he casts. And he always has this eye for talent that's just remarkable. Do you know Um, the one actor that he always wanted and didn't get? No. He wrote film after film with Cary Grant in mind and never got him. You can imagine Grant just uh, sailing through, dancing through that Wilder dialogue, can't you? Oh, yes, yes. Um, Somebody told me me about an old-time radio. Old-time radio used to do hollywood films as radio plays and they would sometimes do eclectic castings or strange castings and there's a there's a version of uh hitchcock shadow of doubt with grant as uncle charlie and i'm like i have not had time to search it since i found that out but i will be looking for it later yeah it sounds amazing he would have been remarkable um he would have been really good in some like it hot i think in the in the in the tony curtis role well, I mean, but who would he be, who would he have impersonated? <laughs> that's true. That's, that's true. <laughs> that's, He'd just be himself. 
as you develop, you know, an awareness of Billy Wilder, like what what films are really kind of are you latching on to? So the other films that stood out, uh, one, two, three is another one I remember watching early on, uh, which again just just floored me. The the twist about a third of the way through, where suddenly everything you think you know about this story is tossed up into the air is remarkable. And I really was starting to develop this appreciation of that kind of storytelling. And then I think the one that sealed the deal probably was Double Indemnity, which is just a remarkable piece of work. Everything about that just just sings. It's probably his first masterpiece. Uh, and it is, it is extraordinary. We're both rotten. Only you're a little more rotten. You got me to take care of your husband for you. And then you get Sakati to take care of Alola. Maybe take care of me too. That's the way you operate, isn't it, baby? Suppose it is. Is what you've got cooked up for tonight any better? I, I'm so excited that you said one, two, three. That to me is a, like a, a criminally underappreciated film. You have James Cagney just knocking dialogue out like nobody's business. Yeah. Leave him. I don't want that creep in my office. Why don't you send him home to clean out his cage? I think he better be here because we have something to tell you. Tell me what? You're not engaged again, are you? No, not this time. Thank God. We're married. For a minute, I was afraid. With this brilliant conceit, the premise is so good. Like you said, Wilder has an ability to just zero in on an idea and, and make it like he takes the idea from, from Brief Encounter to make the apartment. Yeah. The, the guy whose apartment gets used for the affair. Uh, it makes him the main character. One, two, three, like just putting it in, in East Berlin and like, like the whole political thing. And oh, that is such a good film. And so few people know it. And to me, it's just a, it's an appreciation of how good Wilder's career is because he has these top level films that are like unbelievable. But he has this other level of films that are really good that people just either don't appreciate, don't know or you know, haven't quite been exposed to yet. Yeah, even The Lost Weekend, for which he won the Academy Award for Best Picture, I don't yeah. think is necessarily top of mind when people think about him. No. It's such a strange film, like almost humorless, very kind of dark, almost maudlin. And then to follow that up a few years later with Double Indemnity, which is like you know probably the best film noir, um, yeah. just remarkable. And then he, he does these wonderful comedies. Now in there, there's a film I, I watched for the first time uh, this weekend in preparation for this. Uh, yeah. Have you seen The Emperor Waltz? Yes, I think so. That's the one with Bing Crosby, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a curio <laughs> in the uh, in the collection. Uh, I don't think it quite works. Um, but, uh, it's uh, yeah. It's yeah, there's there's a few. Listen, I'm a huge admirer of Wilder, but there's a quite a few actually throughout his career that don't work. I don't think anything after the Fortune Cookie really works. Uh, mm -hmm. You said to me before we started that uh, you have a fondness for the private life of Sherlock Holmes, and you're not the first person to say that to me. Yeah. But I can't get past the structural flaws. Uh, it's just, I'll tell you my story with, with the private lives of Sherlock Holmes. So I became a real film buff in high school and, um, I'd heard about this film that Billy Wilder made that was about Sherlock Holmes and I love Sherlock Holmes. And it like, that was my lost grail for years. I could not track down a copy. So when I finally got it, like, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's not a good film, um, <laughs> But I, 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 I like I like Christopher Lee in the film, and I like I, the guy who plays Holmes, uh, Robert Stevenson. I, yep. I, I think he's a really good actor. But it's 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 I bloated, I think and I think he's he's a good actor. I don't think that's a very good performance, and I particularly don't think it's a very good performance as Sherlock Holmes. 
No, C- considering you like around the same time you had uh, Nicol Williamson doing doing homes yeah. in Seven Percent Solution, which was much 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 better. Um, yeah, I just it's that like oh it it should be so much better, um, but it's it's not great. But I agree. Like later, the later Wilder films really don't work for me, and it's it's not that he doesn't have good a uh, good premise. I think some of the as you say, buddy buddy, but it's it's like he. I'm not exactly sure what it is. If he just loses his touch or. It's amazing that the same man who did such an incredible job on the pacing of one, two, three, Mm -hmm. then went on to make the front page, which is just leaden. It's so ponderous. A, why you would make the front page when His Girl Friday exists is beyond me. Like to go back and re- recast them as two males makes no sense to me. At least one of whom is about 15 years too old for the book. <laughs> At least. Um, and and then, yeah, to make it like so like plodden and, and just it's it's a it's a curious choice if not, nothing else. I think the thinking was that the film had been boulderized both when it was made with two men in the late 20s and even the, to my mind, peerless Howard Hawks version. Uh, and they wanted to do one which was dirty. They wanted to do one which had the kind of the salty tang that was present in the stage original. Uh, you know, in the, in the stage version, people are leaving to go to the toilet the whole time and they couldn't get that past the Hays Code in the nascent Hays Code. They're not even being properly enforced Hays Code in 1929, yeah. I think it was. Uh, uh, but uh, what they did was uh, there's a doorway through which characters exit over which is hanging a tin can because they're going to the can. And the censor didn't spot that. I think maybe you've hit on something really, really important. Like the, the, people have been trying to make double indemnity for years, but couldn't get it past the censors. And Wilder, when he has limitations, shows his creativity and, and gets, get, gets things done. This is something we, we looked at when we, on this podcast, we talked about screwball comedies, that screwball comedies flourished because of the Hays Code. Yeah. When you went to see a screwball comedy, you got this delicious sense that somebody was getting away with something. You know, uh, Cary Grant walking around pressed up against Catherine Hepburn because the back of her dress is torn off. You cannot have a single man pressing his whole torso and groin against the back of a single woman under any other circumstances. But once you have that ridiculous plot contrivance, suddenly it becomes okay. And so um, in The Apartment, The Apartment is a film that you could uh, show to your eight-year-old, should you happen to have one. And they would see nothing that would disturb them at all. They might have a few questions about why people keep wanting to go back to this place to play records and eat crackers. But... He has a really good sound system. There's nothing untoward happening on screen. It's all implied. And so, yeah, you see some of the excesses in some of those later films. And it is easy to think, yeah, those constraints galvanized him. And now he can do anything. It's not fun in the same way. The spark of brilliance isn't there. And I've I've always you know had toyed with this idea that that art is best created with with limitations and restrictions because then you you work within them, um, and you, the truly creative can use those limitations to make something amazing. If you have no limitations, suddenly it's just really excessive. Um, if you were recommending Wilder films to start for a novice, somebody who'd never didn't know Wilder, maybe had seen Double Indemnity on TV once, where where are you going to direct them? I think you can't go wrong with something like it hot. It's such a classic. Yeah. Uh, I would maybe be a little nervous about sending people to the apartment because it's such a, uh, a precious film. 
I couldn't bear it if somebody said it goes on a bit, doesn't it, or something like that. Uh, that would be uh, that would be so painful. Oh, Tom, um, <laughs> I had I had to, I had to talk, stop teaching Casablanca for several years because I had students oh, no. who would go, "Oh, Ilsa's kind of whiny." Oh my god! And, <laughs> oh like, dear. So I it was a couple of years where I prefaced it going like, you are allowed not to like things that I think are amazing. Like that's, that's totally cool. But if you have like a very unreflective criticism, I'm probably going to think badly of you. And then I just decided I'm not going to show cast for a while. <laughs> I tried to show uh, the apartment to a friend of mine uh, a little while ago. And unfortunately we didn't get all the way through it. So I think we ended somewhere in the, um, uh, the, the big office party. Right. And, and I was like, Oh, like, I really, I really hope this friend goes back and, and tries to finish it because it's worth yeah. it. I might, I might go with one, two, three, you know, uh, because uh, it's, they'll know nothing about it, this hypothetical mm. person from pop culture, because as you say, it doesn't exist in pop culture. It's incredibly funny all the way through. I don't think it's dated particularly badly. Even the sexual politics, never Billy Wilder's strong suit. Uh, <laughs> are are not uh, are not too bad, you know. When, let's be clear, we're uh, we're not going to start with something like um, "Love in the Afternoon" or "Kiss Me Stupid." No. <laughs> or the Emperor Waltz. Or the Emperor Waltz, for that matter. Uh, or uh, or the Major and the Minor, if you want to go all the way back to the beginning of his directing career. But yeah, I think uh, one, two, three would be a really good starting point. It's brilliantly plotted. You can't be bored for a second. There's there's music. There's oh. dancing. Uh, and there's just brilliant comedy all the way through, and even the the slightly dodgy, uh, you know, uh, using the the busty secretary as a trading chip. Uh, she does get some agency, uh, and she's not just uh, an object. That's uh, I did have vague thoughts years and years ago of uh, trying to do that as a stage play, and I never even got as far as looking into the rights. Uh, but it would be fantastic, and I knew exactly who I wanted as uh, in, in the as, as McNamara. I think he's probably getting on a bit now, uh, but there's a, a perfect actor who I happen to know and have worked with who, about ten years ago, would have been brilliant, um, and oh. that's Mike McShane. Oh, I know, oh. I know. But I think the right the rights for something like that would be so complicated because I think it's based on a play, uh, so there'd be all sorts of underlying rights issues, and yeah, it's it, that kind of thing is just is just messy. Yeah, I did notice going back through some of his uh, Wilder's catalog that there are a few films, I think of the early ones that he wrote with Brackett, that are like suggested by a play. So mm. I don't even know how the rights would, would figure with that. Maybe public domain at this point, but I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's bomb-proof. It's absolutely bomb-proof. But you might want to beef up the role of the secretary a bit just to yeah. make it yeah. a bit more of a playable part. I think that would be great. I think that would be really great. Oh, I might um, still do it. You, you never know. Yeah, yeah. So somebody else could do the <laughs> McNamara part. But like th th that, he thinks to cast James Cagney had retired. Yeah, he wasn't making movies anymore. I went back into retirement afterwards because wow, yeah. such a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that that was not an easy. I don't think Wilder would have been an easy director to work with. That well, he he was very pedantic about his dialogue. Uh, he and Diamond, and I assume Brackett as well, but the stories I've heard are all about him and Diamond, would would really work on the dialogue and they would have particular actors in mind for all the major parts. If they recast mm -hmm. an actor, they'd revise the dialogue. And so Wilder kind of had the whole film in his head, a little bit like Hitchcock in that way, when shooting started. And he was, yeah, some actors were allowed to like play a little bit, uh, improvise bits of business, but the dialogue was sacrosanct. And there are long takes and long speeches in one, two, three. And mm -hmm. there's a story that Cagney got off this incredibly long speech and Wilder was ready to move on. And Diamond just kind of uh, loped over, whispered in his ear, 
And then Wilder said, sorry, we have to go again. Those weren't the exact words. He'd got one <laughs> word wrong. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, that's why he that's why he quit. He came back for, what's that? Um, ragtime. Ragtime, that's right. He came back yeah. for ragtime and that was it. Yeah. You, you, you tell James Cagney he got one word. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you'd see... Um, White Heat, James Cagney, not uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Oh. <laughs> yes. oh, are there any are there any Wilder films that you just cannot handle? I never like Kiss Me Stupid. It mm-hmm. just seems seems sleazy. Um, I agree with Wilder that uh, Love in the Afternoon doesn't work. He said the second I cast Gary Cooper, he got too old. Um, I disagree that um, Jimmy Stewart doesn't work in The Spirit of St. Louis. Uh, it's not a great film, but uh, there's no particular problem with James Cagney playing that part. Uh, there's very no. few people you could have got to play that at that time. You could have just sat in that cockpit and talked to a fly and made it work. Yeah, and Stuart can do no wrong. Um, other than that, I mean, Sabrina, it's fine. You know, it just doesn't sort of amount to anything. That period, you know, uh, he does Sunset Boulevard in 1950. I've got the list in front of me, by the way. This is not from memory. Uh, <laughs> Ace in the Hole, Stalag 17, a seven-year itch. That is an incredible run. And in the middle yeah. of Sabrina, which is it's just sort of fine. You know? Well, just... and, and you mentioned Ace in the Hole. Like, that's a film I only really kind of have come to appreciate recently. But it is so cynical. It oh, my God. It is so dark and so cynical. Like, if you think Double Indemnity is dark, like, completely different. And then and then to contrast that with Sabrina. Like, and you know, he's writing his own scripts. It's not like he's being handed stuff by the studio. He can do what he wants. Um, it, Sabrina never quite makes sense. And I mean, no. it has, it has Audrey Hepburn, which is wonderful. Uh, Humphrey Bogart, again, wonderful. Um, but I, I don't get, I don't get the, the, the attraction of, of Sabrina, uh, in his body work. It just doesn't quite work for me. No. And then I, I, um, I caught up by, I rewatched Ermola Deuce, which I think I can, mm. I'd seen years and years and years ago. And then when 1963, came out of our hat in our random drawing process to watch all the Best Picture winners. Mm-hmm. I rewatched Irma Deuce, and ah, I, I, for the first half, mm-hmm. I think it's great. But as soon as Jack Lemmon starts doing that British accent, I'm just like, <laughs> oh, dear me, no. <laughs> oh, please. Oh, did, and, did he not learn from Dick Van Dyke, or yeah. did Dick Van Dyke not learn from him? But it's just, oh. you know, it's, 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 it becomes a portrait of a man in a hole who won't stop digging, and he just looks like the architect of his own misfortune. And it just seems like with a with a, a two minute conversation, this could all be sorted out. What's brilliant about some like it hot is there's never a sense that they're the architects of their own misfortune. The only bad decision, arguably, is Tony Curtis's to try and play a second role in order to try and win Monroe. But it's Marilyn Monroe. I mean, you would. Can, yes, yes. Go for the hot blonde. But that that film's that film's sort of so kind of the opposite of uh, of one two three it's so deep in the public conscience maybe no film that he made apart from uh the seven year itch is is more in pop culture but that kind of blinds us to what a difficult trick that film pulls off mm-hmm. and there's a story that wilder was pitching someone the plot uh because they they knew that if they wanted the fun of two guys dressing up as women in order to avoid something that something had better be really super important. And that led them to, well, it's got to be life and death. And that led them to the St. Valentine's Day massacre. That also led them to the 1920s, which means that everybody looks ridiculous, which means yeah. that the disguises are a bit easier to swallow. Uh, so he, he's pitching this story. And the I think it's the, 
maybe one of the Mirish brothers or someone like that, or someone at UA, saying there's going to be bullets and blood and bodies, and then people are going to laugh? And while I was like, sure. And the control of tone in that whole film is just phenomenal. When he is on, he is on. Some like it hot. Um, Sunset Boulevard, same thing. Like yeah. you can go really, really dark, really quick, and then lighten it really quick, and have these have these moments where darkness and light balance tonally. He can do incredible things. And what makes always made him more impressive to me than Hitchcock, he writes his own stuff. Like that's you know I know Hitchcock has a lot of control. Yeah, I was going to say to be to be fair to Hitchcock, Hitchcock supervised the writing process in quite yeah. a detailed way. You know, no no word or or um, scenario got into a Hitchcock script without his say so. Basically, after Rebecca. Uh, but yes, Wilder is is completely the architect of his own worlds, uh, and I mean that's kind of why he became a director. Hitchcock became a director because uh, he was working behind the scenes on other people's movies. Wilder became a director in order to protect his screenplays. But I was going to ask you whether you'd seen any of his American films for which he's credited as writer but not director. Yes. There's some treasures there. Yes. Nanotchka, obviously. Just brilliant. Garbo is so good in that film. Amazing. And stunning. Ball of Fire is a longtime beloved film for me. Barbara Stanwyck, just, I don't agree with her politics, but man, do I love her. Have you seen Midnight? I don't think I have seen Midnight. Midnight's an absolute treasure. That was uh, recommended to me by a listener to Best Pick, and I'd never heard of it. Directed by Mitchell Leeson, and it's Bracket and Wilder. Uh, And uh, it's another one of these sort of uh, screwball, mistaken identity, people playing roles. You can see nascent ideas which are going to flower in other projects, uh, but it's incredibly funny. Uh, And a wonderful cast. Don Amici, Claudette Colbert, John Barrymore, none of your rubbish. Uh, it's a it's a fabulous film. I'd All go right. watch that now. I, I might. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll see if I can track that down and watch it this evening. That's great. This has been so exciting. I've really enjoyed talking. Like I just I love Wilder. Um, when when I discovered um, Dublin Indemnity, I was in university, and me and my roommate would would use bits of dialogue as kind of our our standard uh, repartee with each other. So yes. we'd, call each other, we'd call each other baby and, and you know, <laughs> straight down the line, baby, straight down the yeah. line. It's the relationship between uh, the two men that makes that film. Barbara Samick, again, the reason I probably wouldn't show that to our hypothetical wilder neophyte is that Barbara Stanwyck looks like the product of a different age. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, the Fred McMurray, Ebert G. Robinson relationship is incredibly kind of modern sounding and Robinson is extraordinary. He'd never really played a part quite like that before, I don't think, but he's phenomenal. Every month, hundreds of claims come to this desk. Some of them are phonies and I know which ones. How do I know? Because my little man tells me. What little man? The little man in here. Every time one of these phonies comes along, he ties knots in my stomach. I can't eat. Yours was one of them, Galopus. That's how I knew your claim was crooked. And took a real risk um, because he was a leading man up until that point to take a character role, obviously the second billing uh, after Stanwyck and McMurray. But, oh, does he make that film? Yeah. And that, that simple gesture of striking the match, uh, it's, just, it's just perfect. There's a lot of Wilder films which end with two men and one of them says, I love you. But they never say the words, I love you. Yeah. Now, yeah. Do you remember how um, uh, 
uh, Starlink 17 ends? No. William Holden, finally making his escape from the camp, finally thinking that the odds are in his favour, uh, looks around at these guys he's been incarcerated with and says, fellas, if we... I'm paraphrasing, but it says something like, fellas, uh, if, uh, if when all this is over, we should happen to meet uh, back out in the real world, let's pretend we don't know each other, okay? <laughs> That's right. That's right, I remember. Just one more word. If I ever run into any of you bums on a street corner, just let's pretend we never met before. Starlight 17 is, yeah. a, is a really smart, really good film that, that kind of gets lost. Uh, William Holden doesn't get the appreciation he deserves. He really honestly. doesn't. Not even after Towering Inferno. Not a great film, but he's a lot of fun in it. Would you be up for some fast forward, some quick back and forth answer yeah, go stuff? For it. For fast, fast. Right. You you sent me a list of all the things that you're a fan of that you would be willing to talk about. And I got to say, like, it was very close to something I could have written myself. I think with <laughs> with the exception of musicals, I, I don't I don't okay. do musicals. Um, we have very similar tastes. So I kind of went a little broad with this. So is there something, Tom Zielinski, you are a huge fan of that might surprise people? Uh, I sort of feel I've exposed myself <laughs> fairly comprehensively in my uh, three and a half or four years of podcasting. Uh, is there a... F- um, I don't know. I have, uh, I have fairly broad tastes. Um, sorry, this isn't, this isn't nearly as quickfire as you're expecting. I mean, this has come up on the podcast, but uh, a kind of guilty pleasure film of mine would be Pitch Perfect. Tom, who should be cast as the next James Bond? Henry Golding. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Yeah, Henry Cavill also good. Uh, one of the Henrys, uh, but Henry Golding would just be would just take the story off in a new direction. Henry Cavill, if they're going to do what I think they should do and take it back to the 1950s, Henry Golding, if they're going to do it for the 21st century, I'm I'm a little worried. Henry Cavill is too well known. He's Superman and Sherlock Holmes. It's it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> yes. I I think people are sleeping on Tom Ellis. Oh, interesting. Um, if you know interesting. him just from Miranda, maybe not. But if you've seen him in Lucifer, he can do angry really well. Um, and I think, again, he's young. It would go in a different direction. A little bit more Roger Moore, but not quite as campy. What is the geekiest thing you own? I definitely have some sonic screw- screwdrivers knocking around somewhere. Um, uh, and I don't know, do... I guess one of the sort of geeky things is I do have a habit of buying the same material again and again and again. Uh, so James Bond films, uh, which we talked about, uh, I, I uh, taped off the TV uh, onto VHS. Uh, and then I think, did I ever buy an official VHS box set? I definitely bought a DVD box set, a special edition DVD, DVD box set and a Blu-ray box set. One treasure possession I have, which is a uh, kind of a geeky thing, is uh, my adorable wife, Deborah, got me for for um, my birthday one year, uh, an LP of classical music, which had once been owned by Douglas Adams, uh, which we know because he wrote his name on the back of it. Oh, that. I, I have it framed. You, you have a good wife. <laughs> <laughs> Final question, Tom. Does the Academy ever get it right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> First of all, there's a sense in which uh, they always get it right because uh, their job is to poll their members and find out what those people mm-hmm. think. Uh, and art is subjective, and it's pointless to say 
they they should have known better when we look at a film from a uh, a different historical vantage point, or I would have voted differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I always agree with them in the sense that I would have cast my vote the same way? Yeah, in fact, I can tell you exactly how often they get it right because uh, we, we've tabulated the results. Yes. Uh, and in that sense, they get it right. I think it's about a quarter of the mm. time. Okay. Uh, so yeah, Parasite is a, is a great example. Uh, Parasite was a film that they did not have to give their top award to, by no means, particularly not when clearly it was going to win best foreign language film uh, but they did uh, and that kind of struck me as a, a stick your neck out vote and just vote for the film that you got the most out of this year regardless of whether you think it's the the film other people are going to enjoy coda this year seems a little bit more like vote for the film that uh, just like gave me the warm and fuzzies rather than the film which was the greatest filmmaking uh, um, uh, experience the greatest filmmaking achievement of the year uh, I don't think anyone could accuse Coder of being that. Uh, but Parasite, again, like some of these other films we've been talking about, Parasite's a really difficult balancing yeah. act. Parasite's doing a lot of different things at once, and they mesh so smoothly. It really is remarkable. It's it's a it's an amazing film. The fact that um, the majority of the things that I've seen about Coda before this news were comparing it to the Green Book already kind of yeah, yeah. kind of made me. <laughs> Oh, all right. Yeah, because there's a a weird Oscar-y thing about it that uh, there's only a a very small number of films that have won Best Picture and not even had a nomination for the director. Mm. And uh, the list includes Argo, Green Book, and Coda. Mm. So make of that what you will. Yeah. Um, You mentioned tabulating the results. Um, Can you tell me a bit about the book? Yes. Uh, So we we realised as our journey was coming to an end that we'd massed an enormous amount of both research and opinions. Uh, And so we thought that maybe uh, that should be preserved for people who don't listen to podcasts or uh, just would rather have a a ready reference. Uh, So initially we were going to do one chapter per film, but a little bit of preliminary work revealed this would result in a book about as long as the Lord of the Rings trilogy. (laughs) and that we would struggle to find a publisher. Uh, so the, the more streamlined solution we came up with, the streamlined solution we came up with was one chapter per decade. Mm-hmm. So that's how the book's organised. So you get a chapter on what was happening, an essay on what was happening in the Oscars. You get an essay on what was happening in film during those years. You get an essay going behind the scenes of a particularly interesting film. And then you get our review of what we thought was the, the best film of those 10 and the worst. And then little capsule reviews answering the question you posed a moment ago, d- did the Academy get it right? It's a great book. Uh, for 92 films. It's a, and it's a great book. Um, I, I really oh, liked it. Much. And I must say, I was deeply flattered that Jessica reached out and said, as a film scholar, could this be used as a textbook? And I wrote her a little back, a little paragraph and said, this is where I think it could be used. That's really nice to hear. Where can people find you on social media and find out what you're up to and what you're doing? Yep. Uh, on Twitter, I'm uh, at Tom Selinsky. Uh, and one of the things you'll see there is uh, my Trek a Day project. Uh, so it dawned on me. Uh, well, I say it dawned on me. There was a spreadsheet involved. Uh, I, uh, I worked out uh, that if I start watching Star Trek at the rate of one episode a day on the 1st of January 2022, uh, and I maintain that, treating the movies as one and treating two-part episodes in syndication that were originally shown as single double-length episodes as one, uh, then I will watch the last episode of Enterprise on Christmas Day 2023. So that's what I'm doing. Wow. Uh, I'm on the animated series at the moment, uh, which is bizarre. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you can find that uh, if you look for the hashtag Trekker Day uh, and you can see reviews that come out sort of um, once a week or so at tomselensky.co.uk slash blog 
uh, or daily just like one sentence summaries at uh, on my Twitter. Excellent. I will link to those in the show notes. I am so appreciative of your time. And you know, for people who are listening, Tom stayed up till five o'clock in the morning watching the Oscars. <laughs> so I am so grateful that you gave me some time today. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Have a, have a wonderful day. Same to you. Cheerio. Thank you for joining me on Geek 4. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Geek4Pod or me on Twitter at MWBoyce. If you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for. Well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs>